Let's open up now together to the book of Romans chapter 4. As we have been working our way through this glorious book, we've come to chapter 4, and in, in chapter 4, what Paul has been doing after laying a foundation for the need of all mankind for salvation by God's grace through faith alone. Paul has, in chapter 4, zeroed in on the life of Abraham, really showing how it's Abraham's life that provides for us a prime example that all justification, all right standing with God is, is a gift of God's grace to be received through faith. And so as we've gone through chapter 4 so far, Paul has shown us that Justification has never been a matter of works, the things that we do and don't do, that it has never been a matter of religious ritual. Now we're going to see that justification was never through the law, right? Standing with God has only ever come through faith alone. And so we're going to read, picking up where we left off last week, in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of faith, then faith is null and and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this precious gift that you have given to us, that through your word, by your Spirit's working, we hear the voice of our God. We come to know you. You call even to life that which is dead and to to sight eyes that are blind. And so we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, your word would accomplish all of your good purposes this morning in us. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. If we want to consider just how different biblical Christianity is from everything else outside of it, we would need to first focus in on that being biblical Christianity, because there's a thing that calls itself Christianity out there that's not so different from everything else around it. But if we want to ask the question, what is it that makes biblical Christianity so different from the social gospel that is being promoted in so many churches each week? The social gospel that that essentially says the good news, the gospel is not a matter of sin and salvation. It's not a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of social justice. It's a matter of equity. It's a matter of fairness. How's the true... Biblical Christian gospel different than the trendy, moralistic, therapeutic deism that's being preached this morning in many pulpits. One that that says there's a God up there, out there, somewhere, this cosmic genie who's waiting to reward us if we do good things, 
So try really hard to be the best person you can be. Try to be good and God's going to bless you. How different is true biblical Christianity from a cult with Christian features? Something like Mormonism. Something like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Something like the gospel presented in Roman Catholicism. How's it different from other world religions? Islam, Hindu, Buddhism. Well, we only need to look one place. If we want to see how it's different, what exactly is different about it, we need to look at one place to see how distinct true biblical Christianity is, and that is we need to zero in right on the very core of the gospel message. What is the hinge that the gospel message turns on? In the very center of the biblical gospel is this, justification by grace alone through faith alone, and that totally apart from works. Any religion devised by men will be based on merit. It will be based on earning. Why is that? Why is every other religious system based on earning, based on merit? Well, the answer is because that's how the world works. If you remember, if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about becoming valedictorian of a high school class. And no one who, who stands on that stage as valedictorian is at that moment flunking out of school. No, no one becomes valedictorian who's never passed a class before. It takes dedication. It takes pretty much getting only A's in all your classes. It, it takes committing yourself on every assignment, every exam. We talked about someone who becomes a Hall of Fame baseball player. Never has someone been uh, entered into the Hall of Fame who at that, that moment is hearing about baseball for the very first time. All of these people who have dedicated the entirety of their lives to this one pursuit. And that's the only way man understands the world. You work for the things that you want. You, you pour yourself into them. You establish a track record of success in these things. That's the only way we can understand the world. And so any religion that man creates is going to have merit right at its very center. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is opposed to earning any kind of earning. God's way of salvation is completely unlike any approach that man could conceive of, any approach that man could invent. In fact, they are polar opposites. And so it's not just that the biblical gospel is sort of different than Mormonism. It's not just that the biblical gospel is sort of different than the Roman Catholic gospel or any other man-made religion they're not just different, they are hostile to one another. Because the biblical gospel says the only righteousness that God will accept. There's only one kind, and it is his own perfect righteousness. He will not accept any substitutes. He will not accept anything that, that falls short of that. Man's righteousness will never be accepted by God because, as Paul has shown us in the early chapters of Romans, man doesn't have any righteousness for God to accept within himself. There's nothing in me, as we just sang this morning, that would commend me to God. And so if you want to be found with God's righteous status, there's only one way to get there. It's not through our good works. It's not through our morality. It's only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, without any reliance whatsoever on your own merit, on your own earning, on your own works. And it's upon, as Paul has shown us, it's upon believing in 
Jesus Christ, that God then puts into the believer's account his very own spotless, perfect, righteous status. And so no one who ever receives this gift of God's grace is already righteous. It's not like the valedictorian who is already a success in school when they receive that award. No, no one who receives this gift is already righteous. Everyone who receives this gift is unrighteous. Everyone who receives this gift from God is unworthy, undeserving. In fact, they're hostile to God, Paul has shown us. In in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, God justifies the ungodly. That is the only person who receives this gift of the righteousness of Christ, the ungodly. And so where justification is, as the gospel defines it, there can be no mixing whatsoever of our works with God's grace. There's no earning. There's no meriting. We don't get to contribute in any way. Jesus alone can save. He alone can give his righteousness. We can never work our righteousness up to a level that's acceptable to God. And so when anyone ever tries to draw a comparison to the biblical gospel and some man-made gospel, when they try to say perhaps salvation can be found here if you are really earnest about it, we need to remember the core of the message of the biblical gospel. If someone says that anything other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, could in any way save, the hair on the back of our neck ought to stand up. And that's exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. That's why he says what he said so far in Romans. The the Jews of Paul's day loved works righteousness. They trusted in an outward conformity to the law To save them. But as we've seen many times already in our study of Romans, this is not just a Jewish problem, this is a human problem. Natural man loves works righteousness, it's the only thing he can understand. The the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. So all we can understand is works righteousness, and it just so happens that it feeds perfectly into our pride. We love the idea that we get to share some of the credit for being a good person, for somehow being better than other people. And so Paul's going to continue pointing to the life of Abraham to prove, again, that salvation could never come by works of the law. Only by grace through faith. So look with me now at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the first thing Paul does here as he begins to speak of the law is he connects the promise of Abraham to justification by faith. And what is that promise? What is the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, Paul says? Well, he tells us here. It's that he would be the heir of the world. That's a big promise. The heir of the world. That The whole world is in view here in this promise that is made to Abraham. Abraham and his offspring are heirs of the world. And if we remember from last week, verses 11 and 12, who are Abraham's offspring? This is where we should be excited. Abraham's offspring aren't ethnic Jews. Abraham's offspring are all of those who have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So so it's those who have been credited with Christ's righteousness. Believers in Christ are the heirs of the world, is what Paul is saying here. 
That's an amazing promise. That is a huge promise. That is a glorious promise. But it's not this world as it currently is. We don't have to work very hard right now to see that this world has got some issues. We've got orange tape on half of our pews. That drives me crazy. That's not a sign that things are going well with the world around us. If we remember back to chapters 1 and 2, how is it that God views this world currently? Is he pleased with it? No, of course not. This world is full of sin. This world is wallowing in rebellion. This world has been given over to judgment. So, so this world does not match the righteous status that God has given to Abraham and his spiritual descendants, all who come to God through faith in Christ. And so in this world right now, one who has received God's righteous status, which Paul tells us makes us an heir of the world, will not feel very much like they have inherited the world. I trust most of you are not going through your day feeling that way, just stepping outside your front door, breathing in that fresh air through your nose and going, I am an heir, this is, I'm an heir of the world. Well, it's not because it's not true, it's because we don't feel it, right? This, this, in this world of sin, you're going to feel like most of the time that the world as it currently is, has something personal against you. You ever feel that way? The world has something personal against you. Here's why. It does. The world has something personal against you. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in the world you'll have tribulation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world and the things that it offers you. 1 Peter 2, 11 says, we are aliens and strangers in this world. We who are, who are the heirs of the world are aliens and strangers in the world. So we're not to look at this world as it is right now and what it can offer to us, but instead look to the world that God has promised to us in Christ. What has he promised to us in Christ? Glorious things, amazing things. Apostle Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is amazing. That is astounding. I hope you haven't heard that passage and read that passage so many times that it doesn't shock you and blow your mind, the very things that, that Paul is saying here. We are inheriting sons, joint heirs with Christ, blessed by God with every single spiritual blessing. So no matter what wickedness we see out of our windows or on our televisions or on our computer screens, no matter how grim and hopeless the future might look, Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, has defeated all of his foes. He is ruling and reigning right now. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This Jesus is on the throne ruling and reigning. His enemies on this earth who look powerful to us and look like they are winning would be wise to tremble. Ours is that message by the way. That's why it's important that we gather together every Sunday morning. We say the God who made all things will be worshipped in the earth. We say to governmental authorities, you are in no place to stop that from happening. That's not your place. Be wise, kings of the earth. Be warned, O rulers. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. So God promised Abraham his seed would inherit the whole world. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise is the Lord Jesus Christ. The promised seed. The whole earth is his, as we just saw in Psalm 2. And so here's this glorious truth for us. We've been united with Christ. That's the the Bible's favorite designation for Christians. It's not to call them Christians. It's to say that you are in Christ. We are united to him. And so by faith, the promises to Abraham become our promises. And this has nothing whatsoever to do with the law. Verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. No moral code of any kind. Not the Mosaic law given by God or anything else played a role in our receiving this promise. The the, the promise to all who would believe is not attached to any kind of law, any kind of works, any kind of moral code. The promise is received only, Paul says here, by means of the righteousness of faith. In in other words, it's, it's that credited righteousness that we've been talking about as we go through Romans. It's a declared righteousness that becomes ours through the instrument of faith just as it was for Abraham. Verse 14, that the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there's no law, there is no transgression. And so if one seeks to be justified, again, to to be in right standing with God, if one seeks to inherit these promises, By law-keeping, then salvation will never be achieved because it would depend on us. If it depends on law-keeping, it depends on us. And as we've seen so many times in Romans, we don't actually have righteousness within ourselves to commend us to God. We're bound in sin, Paul has shown us. We have no ability to break sin's hold on us. As Paul told us in chapter 3, verse 20, by works... Of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so when when you take unrighteous man, and he tries to justify himself by the law, he, he holds the law up close to himself. Here's what it does. It exposes him. The law exposes our guilt. The law reveals our unrighteousness. So there's no way it could be a means of justification. It couldn't possibly do it. 
it can only bring condemnation. It would be like if I tried an elaborate stunt to claim that I was the president of the United States. I'm President Trump. And by that, I wanted like some flights on private jets and whatever else. And I wanted to get in somewhere. They weren't going to let me in. And I just held a big picture of him right up next to my face. And I said, see, this proves it. No, the picture would be very much not proving that I'm, I'm not him. They'd say, you have better hair than this man, for one. It would expose me as a fraud. It would, it would not offer me hope. And so when the law is approached as a means of justification, it only ever brings wrath. Now, the law of God is good. But it is not good as a means of justifying. It is not good as a means of salvation. It only condemns. No one can be saved. No one can receive Christ's righteousness through their own law-keeping. It is completely impossible. That's what the first three chapters, mostly, of Romans have been about. And so then Paul says to to try to do that, to to mix God's grace with merit, to mix God's grace with, with earning nullifies faith itself. It makes the promise worthless when you do that. John MacArthur says this. Faith is able to receive anything God promises. If, on the other hand, God's promise is only to be received through obedience to a law that neither Abraham nor his children could keep, then faith is canceled. In other words, to predicate a promise on an impossible condition is to nullify the promise. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this, the the law means failure. Therefore, if the promise has been made through the medium of the law, what God was giving, as it were, with his right hand, he would be taking back with his left hand. There would have been no promise at all. It would have no value whatsoever. So so what what they're trying to say is, let's say that I told you I'm going to give you a million dollars on January 1st. Count on it. Here it is, right here. You know I got it. I'm good for it. I'm going to give it to you. There's going to be one small condition attached. Nothing to really worry about. And I'll tell you on January 1st, when you come to collect the money, what the condition is. Don't obsess over it. But I'm going to give this to you. This is my pledge. This is my promise to you. You begin making plans. What you're going to do with that $1 million. You You got all kinds of ideas. One of them is getting me a golf cart to get back and forth which I appreciate your generosity on. But you're sure you're going to get that money, and you got all these plans, you got everything lined up to get that. And January 1st comes, and you come to receive your money, and I tell you, here's your one condition. Again, all you got to do is do this, and I'll give you the million dollars, just like I promised. I need you to fly, not for long, under your own power, 10 minutes, and the money's yours. You would feel in that moment like my promise was a scam. You would feel like it was cruel, would you not? Your faith in my promise in that moment would be revealed to be completely worthless. The promise itself would be an exercise in futility. It would be completely worthless to you because it was asking you to do something that was completely impossible for you to do, something that was in fact against your very nature. So that's what Paul's telling us here. He says, for the law brings wrath, verse 15. Where there's no law, 
there's no transgression. So our only hope in all of this, it, it can't be in, in, a, in a promise that's based on our ability to keep the law. Our only hope is found, Paul says, in a place where there is no law. Now, Paul is not being antinomian. Antinomian, antinomian just means against the law. Lawless. Paul's not being lawless, just going, do whatever you want then. Where there's no law, there's no condemnation. That's not what Paul's trying to do. Paul's pointing us to the place, and there's only one where there is no law. Where is that place? There is in no law, no law in justification. That is the place where there is no law. It is by faith alone. Now, this is the best news. This is the best news ever. When we see these words, we should rejoice where there is no law. There is no law in justification. And where there is no law, there can be no transgression of the law. In justification, our sin debt, our transgression, fully paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what that means. God no longer sees you as a transgressor. Isn't this a beautiful truth to come to if you've been with us the whole time we've been going through Romans? We're going through Romans 1 and Romans 2 and we are feeling like, is there any hope for any human anywhere? And now Paul points us to a place where there's no transgression. God doesn't see you as a sinner. He's not enraged with you in your sin. He's not looking at you with holy wrath. Your status before him, if you are in Christ, is Christ's own perfect righteousness. What better thing could there be? What more peace could we possibly have? I know you're like me, that you look at your own life and your own shortcomings, and you feel like God must be awfully disappointed in you most of the time. See, what the gospel tells us is that's not true at all. You're believing a works-based righteousness. In fact, if you try to justify yourself by law-keeping, your guilt remains. Paul says you've got to go to that place where there is no law to transgress. And that is trusting in Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. He goes on in verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. Okay, given everything I've just said, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay, so if it, if it depended on us, if it depended on our righteousness, our ability to keep the law, the promise of God would be worthless, but Paul says the promise of God is not worthless. So it cannot be based in the law. And then he says this, this is astounding. Since the promise rests on grace, it is guaranteed, Paul says. It's solid. It's unshakable. It's sure. It's eternally secured, this promise of God. And this applies, we see in the second half of verse 16, to all people, the Jew and to the Gentile. Paul's really summarizing here what he has already said. He's told us that all people, Jew and Gentile, are condemned under sin. 
Both the Jews who had the law of God and the Gentiles who didn't know the law of God had transgressed against the law of God, had rebelled against God, were open in their hostility towards God. All were unrighteous, totally incapable of saving themselves. He has shown us that God has opened the way of salvation to everyone. So just as everyone is condemned under sin, so everyone can come in faith and receive from God salvation. And anyone who comes in that way will never be cast out. The promise, because it rests on grace, is guaranteed. Isn't that better than the promise resting on your shoulders? And so he says, Abraham's the father of all who possess saving faith. All all of Abraham's offspring inherit this promise. It is a guaranteed promise. And what is it that makes this guarantee so sure? It's the one who made it. If it depends on you at all, it's not sure. No, it's, it's because of the one who makes the guarantee that makes it sure. He says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, calls into existence the things that do not exist. So Paul's told us that the the law cannot save, that it only brings wrath. He has told us that faith is the only means by which we can receive the promise of God. And now he gives us a picture of what that faith looks like. But notice what Paul does not do when he talks about the faith here. He doesn't talk about the amount of faith. He doesn't talk about the strength of our faith. We might expect him to do that. We want the answer to that. Paul, exactly how much faith do I need to be saved? How much faith is needed to to receive blessing from the Lord? If I have just more faith, will I get more blessing? But if I have less faith, will I... Will I not come under the blessing of God? Friends, the the word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel, is built on those questions. It is a wicked false gospel. Notice, though, Paul's not talking about the amount of faith. What he talks about is the object of faith. He says Abraham believed in God. His faith was in God. God. He believed not just the promise, but above all, he trusted the one who made the promise. And so genuine biblical faith is never a question of the amount of faith. It is always a matter of the object of our faith. In a couple weeks, Andrea and I are going to be driving in the Smoky Mountains. She gets a little car sick driving in the mountains. So what do you think would happen if, if I said to her, what I'm going to do You know, once we get up this first incline, I'm going to just drive off the cliff and we'll fly the rest of the way in our car. And I need you to, yeah, she's already, she already doesn't like it. She's not worried about my health. She's worried about the health of the poodles. I want you all to know that. So she being a sane person protests as she has already done this morning. But I told her, you need to have faith like I've got. I have complete and total faith in this car to fly us the rest of the way. 
No one has more faith than me for this. I believe in this. I am 100% convinced this is going to work. How successful am I going to be? Does my faith mean the car can fly? The answer is a resounding no. But what if we were super rich and I hired Mel to fly us there so we don't have to drive in that private jet making demands of him? Get me drinks and cheese? I don't know what people do. But as we get into the plane, I look again at Andrea and I go, I don't think this is going to work at all. There's no way this machine's getting off the ground. I'm completely sure this is not going to fly. I have no faith whatsoever for this. In fact, I'm 100% sure we're not going to be able to get off the ground. Does that mean the jet won't fly? No, of course not. What's important isn't the size of the faith, it's the object of the faith. I could have tremendous faith in my car and its ability to fly, but it will never fly, at least not for very long, and the landing's not going to be real nice. I could have the smallest faith, no faith whatsoever in the jet, and it's going to fly me wherever I need to get. When it comes to justification, when it comes to receiving the promise of God, it is not about the amount of faith that you have. It is about the one you have faith in. That, that's the issue. Isn't that a comfort? Isn't that a comfort that it's, none of it is about you? None of it rests on you? It's not about your faith. It's not about maintaining a certain level where you're staying up and you're staying excited. The promises guarantee doesn't rest on you because that would be no guarantee whatsoever. You couldn't do it. You couldn't sustain it. No, the promise is sure because of the one who promised it. So we can have faith in his promises even when we're weak. We can have faith in his promises even when we're faltering. Because it's not our faith that brings the promise to fulfillment. It is God who fulfills his promises. This is the God, Paul says in verse 17, who gives life to the dead. Calls into existence things that do not exist. This is who our God is. This is why the promise is guaranteed. This is why it's rock solid. There's something in Old Testament Hebrew called the prophetic perfect tense. But I think it's such a fitting description for, for how sure God's promises are. What the prophetic perfect tense is, is something will be prophesied that hasn't happened yet, but then it gets talked about as if it has already happened, as if it's already taken place. With, with either present tense language or even past tense language, this thing that hasn't actually taken place yet, because the fulfillment is so sure, so unshakably certain that the authors, the, the writers are talking about it like it's a done deal, like it's already happened. 
We don't ever need to doubt what God is going to do. If he calls something into existence, if God reveals to us in his word, his will, as we see with these promises in scripture, it will surely come to pass. It is certain. If he calls something to life, it will surely live and not die. This is who God is. This is where our trust lies. And so this morning, let me ask you, do you struggle with doubt, Christian? Are you worried you might not love God enough? Or read your Bible enough? Or obey enough? Now certainly scripture is clear. We ought to, this same Paul who said these words says we ought to examine ourselves. See if we're in the faith. Our life will bear testimony, true testimony to whether or not we are in Christ. But let me tell you the answer to your doubts is not to look inward. It's to look to Christ. The solution is to stop trusting in your own righteousness. To give up any form of works to save you. To come to Christ by faith and and trust in him. Friends, you, your, your track record is spotty at best. I'm saying that of like everyone in here. The best of us. Your track record is spotty at best. But he has done enough to secure a sure and guaranteed salvation for all of his people. Look to him. He has given us his sure promises. For those who are in Christ, here's what I will do. They're sure. They're guaranteed. They're secured. We can trust in the Lord. We can believe his promises. But if you've not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I plead with you this morning to turn away from yourself. To trust in Jesus Christ. Trust him. Trust his death for sin in the place of sinners. His death could be in your place if you'll trust in him. In fact, he's promised that it will be. Trust in his death to to satisfy the wrath of God against you, to pay your penalty, to set you free from your slavery to sin. You know you're a slave to sin. Trust in him and he'll do it. It's his promise. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope, but it is the surest hope you will ever experience. If if you'll run to Jesus, if you'll come to him in faith and submission, God will put into your account the spotless righteousness of Christ himself. Instead of your deadness, he'll give you life. Instead of your emptiness and nothingness, he will call into existence that which was not there before, and suddenly you will have everything. You'll have eternal life. You'll have all the blessings of the promise of God. As we read from Ephesians, he will give to you every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, but you must come. It's these promises that we remember when we come to the table, as we'll do this morning for the Lord's Supper. We remember Christ's all-sufficient 
sacrifice in our place. That because of his sinless life, because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection, he has purchased our salvation. We celebrate our union with Christ, that our lives are hidden in him. We inherited all the promises God made to us because they're guaranteed by God himself. And our assurance of that is found in this truth, that we are in Christ. So when God looks at you, he's not looking at a spotty track record. He's looking at the perfection of his son. One author in his book on union with Christ tells a story that I love. It's so, it's so powerful of a, of a young teenage kind of awkward person who didn't really fit in very well, but got a job at Disney as Mickey Mouse. In the, he was the guy in the Mickey Mouse costume. And the amazing thing was when he was at work and he put that on, everyone who saw him loved him. Because they didn't see him. All they saw was Mickey Mouse. That's what it means to be in Christ. God's not looking at your spotty track record. God's not looking at the way you falter. God's not looking at the way your faith ebbs and flows. He sees the perfection of his son and he rewards you accordingly. That promise is only for those who are in Christ. But what a promise! What an offer! This is what we celebrate when we come to the table. In Christ's death, we die. In Christ's resurrection, we rise. We celebrate, too, our union together with one another. We're the bride of Christ. We're the family of God. We're brothers and sisters, joint heirs of the promise of God. What a, what a gift, what a joy it is to celebrate that as we come. And so let us come now to the table. Let us come, yes, examining ourselves repenting of, of sin. Let's come in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let us come and receive this blessing from the Lord. So again, if you're, if you're not a Christian, even if you consider yourself a Christian, but you are not seeking to walk in obedience to the Lord, you are unwilling to turn from sin, you are unwilling to lay these things down, we would ask you not to come this morning. Not because we think we're better than you, but because of what communion is. It is a, it's a celebration of being in Christ. It's a remembrance of his death for our sin, of his resurrection in our place. And, and that's only for those who trust in him. So we'd ask you not to come if that's you, but we would instead plead with you to put your trust in Jesus this morning. You don't need to come to the front and pray a repeat after me prayer call out to him to save you. If, if the Lord is calling your name, he will give you the words. Turn from your sin. Submit your life to him. He will have you. He will have you. For the rest of us, we're going to come now. I'm going to ask a couple elders to come that are going to help serve. We're doing things just a little differently because of the weird times we live in, but we'll, we'll make two lines and come up. We'll have someone with the cup uh, standing in the middle here. We'll have an elder on either side of the table ready to serve you bread. Just put your hand out, and they're going to drop it in there with tongs, which I hope this might be the only time we ever do it this way. Um, but this is our one concession to, uh, to this. And so 
uh, would invite you to come once you receive the elements, uh, go back to your seat, and we will all uh, take of them together. And if there's anyone who's, who's not able to come up and get it, just um, say something to somebody and we'll, we'll bring it to you as well. So I'd invite you to now stand and come to the table.